Well, it's a pleasure to be here and to teach you a bit about Christian apologetics. You have to know that this is normally a 30-hour seminary course, which I teach in Hanover, Germany, on occasion. But I do also go to different churches in Switzerland and Germany, and this is the first time here in the States. I teach this course, but obviously teaching it at a church, you have to limit the number of hours considerably and also make it more simple and more understandable for just anyone who is not necessarily trained in specific um, you know, philosophies which are addressed uh, in apologetics, which is, un which I cannot avoid that, which is just part of the subject that you have to deal with philosophies. So I use certain terms which are just ne second nature to me, and I don't think twice about you not understanding what I'm saying, <laughs> because they are so familiar to me. So if you don't understand what I'm saying here, please make yourself known. I don't want to talk over your heads. I do want to communicate, and I want to express these concepts understandably. Otherwise, I'm, I waste your time and you waste my time if nothing good will come out of that session. So if I use words like epistemology and you've never heard that term, just raise your hand or just tell me in some ways this is something I don't understand. Epistemology is a term which often uh, is used in, in Christian apologetics. It just basically means the theory of knowledge. How do we know anything? And how can we justify knowing anything? That's, ba that's basically what it is. Epistemology. How do we know? And how can we justify the knowledge we do have? Good. That's one term which we got out of the way. <laughs> and there are so certainly other terms which we will um, use, and just let me know if you don't understand it. And we can, in, the, in, in between the sessions, I can also try to define some of the terms if, you, uh, if this is needed. But we try also to stick close to the word, because it's called Christian apologetics. Now, there are many kinds of apologetics. In just about every field, you can have some type of apologetics, politics, economics, sociology, certainly philosophy, courtroom situation, there are many apologetic situations. The most famous book in antiquity is, not, of course, the apology of, of Socrates, when he defended his own worldview against his accusers at Athens. And obviously he was not quite successful because eventually it ended in his death. But it's still quite famous. Do we need to concern ourselves with apologetics? With the, the apologetics means defending the faith. Apologia means defense. That's the Greek word for defense. 
So apologetics is basically just uh, a Greek-derived word used in English, which means defending something. And in our case, it's defending the Christian faith, the truthfulness, reliability of the Christian faith, but there are other aspects which we need to address in the sessions which are following. Do we need to concern ourselves with that subject? Is this something which God has mandated? Now, what do the scripture tell us in regards to that question? The answer is very easy, very straightforward. We are mandated. I will only show you one verse. I could take you to quite a number of other passages. As a matter of fact, I have a PowerPoint presentation and Pastor Bob has listened in to the first lesson which I put up on the internet. He said he didn't understand anything. I couldn't I could not understand that necessarily because I thought he's well educated. I'm just kidding <laughs> because <laughs> it was all in German. <laughs> But there I show at least, I would say, 15 different verses, one after another, where the New Testament speaks clearly in regards to the task of apologetics, defending the faith, which God has entrusted to the believers. I will pick here only the most famous 1 Peter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. And I assume you all know this verse. I will quote it here out of this version. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Here we have the word defense. Apologia. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So it's pretty clear. This is something which is uh, mandated, demanded, required of us as Christians in any and every situation. To anyone who asks you or asked me in regards to the hope which is in us and what is that hope? It's Christ and Christ is the gospel. So we should be prepared. What does this word prepared mean? It means simply work. You have to put effort into that task. It doesn't come naturally. You, you don't press a button and all of a sudden you have all the answers to give to, the vo to those who ask you in regards to the Christian faith. You don't have that. You need to study it. You need to prepare. You need to read books. You need to wrestle with these, with these questions which come up. Sometimes, thankfully, most of these questions are the same. I hear often the same questions being raised and if I'm prepared to answer those, the task of preparing is made easy because 
the questions are usually the same. But there are still a lot of questions which can come up. And I need to be prepared for these eventualities. This means it, it does require of us effort. We have to put out effort on our part. And I think this is perhaps one of the main reasons why apologetics is so neglected in our churches today. Have you ever visited a church where apologetics is made to be one of the most um, popular Sunday school classes <laughs> or teaching sessions in the church? <laughs> I have not encountered such a church, unfortunately. And I, I come, I, I visit quite a number of churches throughout the year. Because for some reason people intuitively know if I expose myself to that kind of thinking and to that kind of subject, I'm I will be challenged. I will have to put effort into that beyond what I hear in the session, in the teaching session. So this is my challenge to you up front. Apologetics doesn't end when we all go home. What I'm doing here is basically just to give you a bit of a taste, and I hope it's a sweet taste, not a, a bitter taste. <laughs> a sweet taste for that wonderful subject of apologetics. I'm absolutely excited about it. And the more I spend time thinking about it, doing it, and we did it just a few days ago in a more public arena. The more I'm excited about it. So I hope that kind of enthusiasm, that little spark is being passed on to you. Who are and should be the most well-equipped apologists. It's the pastor. It's the pastor's task. I could, again, uh, take you to some passages. Let's just pick one. It's an Acts. When Paul speaks to the elders at Ephesus, and I assume you all know these verses, I just need to find them. Let me just uh, paraphrase these verses. They are in chapter 20. Yes. <coughs> Well, Paul says that ferocious wolves will come and try 29. 29. Pastor Bob, may I ask you to read these verses for me? For I know, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Thank you, that's, that's sufficient. Apologetics is not just something we do to defend the Christian faith against the attacks of a non-believing world. This is one aspect, certainly, but I believe sometimes it's a far greater task for the pastors themselves to defend the Christian faith in their midst, in the church, against some people who want to confuse the believers. And I don't know your situation, I don't know your experiences, but I can almost bet, if I'm allowed to bet, I'm all, I could almost bet that you encountered such individuals already. And not just once, not just twice, several times in your past. This certainly is my experience, and I used to be a pastor myself. That used to be my biggest struggle in the church which I passed. It was only one church and lasted 60 months. And it was a struggle from the very first to the very last day. And I was told that this church is a church in Germany, very established old church in the city where um, proportionately the most Baptists live in Germany. There are five Baptist well, it's Germany, okay, it's not America. <laughs> it's a whole, whole different world out there. <laughs> it's a town of, let's say, 40,000 citizens, and we have five Baptist churches in that town. That's, that's the most Baptist in one town in Germany. <laughs> so it's not America. But this was the oldest 100-year-old church, well established. I was told it was also the most conservative Baptist church of all the five in that town. And I became a pastor. The very first week, the head elder said to me, we rented out our chapel to a couple which would like to be married. They will bring in their own pastor so I don't have to lead the ceremony, but we expect you to say a blessing at the end of that wedding ceremony over that couple. Very first week. We had just arrived from the States. We lived in the States for a number of years and we had just arrived in Germany and I was taking up that new position as, as the head pastor. We had about 120 members at the time. So I said, well, sure, if this is uh, desired, I'll do it under certain conditions. I need to know a little bit more about that couple, since I'm not just blessing anyone. I would need to know a little bit more about their marital status, about their spiritual status. Are they believers? That's very important to me. 
When I asked them, how about the man, is he a believer? Well, we think he is. Is the lady a believer? We don't know really, but we think she is. Do do they attend this church here? No, they never attended this church. Do they attend any other church? As far as we know, no. What about their marital status? Well, she has not been married before. But him, he got divorced. How about their current situation? Well, they already live together. Well, these are all indications. You don't need to agree with me. But these are all indications for me that they are not saved live in sin and I could carry on and I said I will not say a blessing under these conditions I gladly do it but not under these conditions this is this goes against my personal conviction I'm not going to do it when the head elder who was a 70 year old older gentleman at the time he is deceased now, but at the time he was 70 year old. He just simply said, going to do it. End of discussion. You don't need to speak about that matter any further. You are going to do it. I said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to do it. Well, we had a discussion. Nevertheless, even though he said there is no discussion, and he said, okay, here's the proposition. All the elders and you will go to that couple, to their common apartment. You will sit in the middle. All the elders will sit behind you. The couple will sit in front of you. And you explain why you don't want to ex- to pronounce a blessing over. And at the end of your explanation, you say, "You are wrong. I'm wrong, and I will bless you." This will this is what is going to happen. So we went to that apartment. All the elders sitting behind me. I was in the middle. The couple was sitting in front of me. I gave my extended explanation why I will not bless that couple. And I did not say I'm wrong. Since I didn't say I'm wrong, and the lady was starting to cry, and the elders behind me, I could feel the heat rising. <laughs> I don't know if you have been in such a situation where you don't see anyone, but you know behind you <laughs> the heat is rising. It's getting harder and harder. <laughs> My head elders said, let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting in his, in his car and he was sitting on a, on a back bench someone else was driving I was sitting next to him his face was red livid he was just as red of a face I, have, I, I, I had never seen the tone of redness in, in a face like I saw it in his face and he, he yelled at me at the top of his voice, he said, you are going to do it. 
if you're not going to do it what we tell you to do, we will cut your hand off. We will throw you out of a church. It's my first week in my first pastorate. <laughs> God has sometimes a sense of humor. <laughs> I feel like I I think. <laughs> well, this was the beginning of the end, as you can imagine, because I didn't budge, and they didn't budge. And it was a fight from basically the first day to the last. And as I, eventually I, I said, the only thing which helps that church is if all of the people in this church, including all the elders, Go on your knees and repent. This is the only thing which helps that church to continue on a positive note, spiritually speaking. And so I was just preaching along that line. And I still remember one Pentecost Sunday. I picked a passage out of Acts chapter 3 where the word repentance is used explicitly. And when I was done preaching, that head elder stood up. As I said, 70 year old. He ran from the back of the church to the front. Ran. Sticking out his, his finger at me, yelling at the top of his voice, he who preaches about repentance needs it the most. And his son-in-law got up and threw his arm around his father-in-law to restrain him from strangling me. That was the situation. I don't want to continue that story. It was just a bit of a more lively explanation and illustration (laughs) out of my own experience that sometimes you need to defend certain biblical truths in your midst. And there is no room to compromise, regardless of what happens. There's no room. You take the consequences as they are dished out to you. Regardless, if they kick you out, they kick you out. God be blessed. And But you also realize, I don't know if this is your experience, and I don't want to know, you don't need to tell me. But in the midst of that Sunday service, when I saw that head elder charging at me, I was as calm as a little baby. I I thought something is going on around me, it doesn't face me, it doesn't touch me. God sticks out for his truth and and if you are faithful and this is the condition if you are faithful he will take care of us okay I got off attention but I think it was important to to begin on that note be faithful servants of the word I think that's the best lesson I could relate to you and this fits for apologetics in which this also fits for quite a number of other tasks you have to fulfill as a pastor. Let's begin with introduction 
you also have to need you also have to know that I am representing one particular school of Christian apologetics. There are many others. I will present everything which I present here from a perspective of, of presuppositional apologetics. Presuppositional apologetics. What I mean by presuppositional become very clear once we get into the subject. So I don't need to define it now. I will define it along um, the roads which we are taking now. There's classical apologetics, there's Thomistic apologetics, and quite a number of others. Um, reformed, epistemological apologetics, and then there are quite a number of other fancy terms are being used. But you need to know that I'm presenting to you just one school of apologetics, presuppositional apologetics. One name which is immediately connected with that kind of thinking is Cornelius Van Til. And he is usually known even though many people don't necessarily know what he stood for and, and what kind of position he took, but at least the name is usually known still in our time. He, he died in the late 80s, I believe in 87, if I'm correct. So in a sense, I'm presenting his thoughts on Christian apologetics. He was the professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He was called by J. Gresham Machen, who was his friend, to be the professor of apologetics when Machen founded Westminster Theological Seminary in 1929. Both of them had been professors or lecturers at Princeton Philological Seminary. And again, I don't need to go into the history, which is quite well known to me, but we don't need to address that here. Uh, they were basically kicked out. Um, Jay Grishmation was kicked out, and <coughs> Cornelius Ventin left voluntarily. But when they got together and founded Westminster Philological Seminary in 1929, In defending the Christian faith, the most important question before us is what sort of defense will best glorify our God? This is the most important question you need to ask yourself. If you think about apologetics, what sort of defense will best glorify our God? And obviously we refer back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Do everything, what you do, be it eating, drinking, do it all for the glory of God. So our apologetics, so just as uh, glorifying to God in the way how we do it, as anything else we do, be it eating or drinking, our apologetics method should also be 
glorifying to God. God forbids that in seeking to defend the faith before others, we should in that very act compromise it. And I would say this is the greatest tragedy of a Christian um, hist- Christian of the history of the Christian church and in particular in regards to Christian apologetics that most Christian apologists compromised the Christian faith in the very act of defending the faith let's just pause here and give our visitors a chance to come in <laughs> Cornelius, Cornelius Van Til. V-A-N and then another word T-I-L. Cornelius Van Til. I said the greatest tragedy in Christian apologetics is that most apologists compromised the faith, the Christian faith, in the very act of defending it. And thus they did more damage to the Christian faith and the Christian church than they did good. And this was the first premise in Cornelius Van Til's thinking, how can I defend the faith in such a way that it brings glory to God? And this is why this school of apologetics appeals to me in a very special way, because this is my greatest desire. Now, I also know the weaknesses of the school. I, I will not address that aspect, but I'm very well aware of it. As a matter of fact, in some other areas of my ministry, I strongly argue against some of the aberrations which flowed from that kind of apologetics. So I'm not, uh, how should I say, I'm not unaware of some of the dangers, but the dangers are more or less false implications of what Cornelius Pantil presented. And some of the influences of Dutch theologians, which had a strong bearing on his mind, also imported a certain element in that kind of apologetics, which can be taken in a way which is detrimental to the Christian faith. And I, I refer specifically to the influence of Abram Kuyper, who used, used to be a prime minister of the Netherlands, founder of a free university in Amsterdam, a journalist, editor of a newspaper, a politician, as I said, prime minister for several years, but also a theologian who came to the States gave a very famous lecture called the Stones, Stone, Le- Stone Lectures at Princeton Philological Seminary in 1898, 
so more than 100 years ago. And these stone lectures are still being printed and published in book form, which can be readily bought at reformed um, publishing houses. They are all over the internet. And the influence of Abram Kuiper on the thinking of Cornelius Van Til was detrimental in certain aspects. Not in all, but in certain aspects. So I'm not a proponent of presuppositionalism in the sense of that I accept every single statement, every single proposition. I'm also critical in certain aspects. But I'm extremely in favor of a main premise, which is we need to use a method of apologetics which glorifies God. The so-called presuppositional school of apologetics is concerned above all with answering this question, again, what sort of defense will best glorify our God? Of course, there are other questions in apologetics which although of less ultimate importance, also deserve answers. Presuppositionalists have discussed those too, but in view of our space limitation and in order to do justice to the main thrust of presuppositionalism, I will focus our attention on this most important question and then as space or time permits, relate some other issues to this one. Okay, you see how I set my priorities. I will not be able to discuss everything. As a matter of fact, even 30 hours, if I had 30 hours uh, time to do it, I would still be in the introduction stage. <laughs> Sorry to say, and I disappoint my students if I say that to them, because they think, well, if I have this endure his lectures for 30 hours, at least I should be well prepared. And now he tells me it's just the very beginning. But that's just a matter of fact. And you remember what I said earlier. It takes time and effort. Among all the sources of divine re revelation, including nature, history, human beings, and God's image, scripture plays a central role. Do you agree with me? I see some heads nodding. Scripture plays essential role. Indeed, though the point cannot be argued in detail here, my view is that Scripture is the supreme, authoritative, inerrant word of God. Supreme or authoritative, inerrant word of God, the divinely authored, written constitution of the Church of Jesus Christ. Scripture is therefore the foundational authority for all of human life, including apologetics. As the ultimate authority, the very word of God, it provides the foundational justification for all our reasoning without itself being subject to prior justification. Now, remember what I said to you in regards to, uh, to epistemology, the theory of knowledge or knowing. 
it answers the question, how do we know anything? And how do we justify knowing what we do know? I gave you here a very clear answer in regards to Christian apologetics. How do we know? What did I just say? It provides the foundational justification for all our reasoning. How do we know? We know because God has revealed it to us. We are not sitting on a bench or on the shore and look into the ocean or on the campfire like we did last night and ask ourselves, who is this God? Who am I? What's the meaning of this world? And then all of a sudden, intuitively, all the answers pop into my mind. I'm here because Pastor Bob wants to let me experience that wonderful experience to sit in front of a campfire. This is not the answer which pops in my mind. How do I know the reason why I'm here in this world? I know it because God has revealed it to me. This means God has taught me, simply taught me what the reason for my existence is. And it is to glorify Him and, and find my enjoyment in Him. As the Westminster Confession so eloquently and absolutely biblically phrases it. This is the reason for my existence. I know it because God has revealed it to me, has taught it to me. So I know because I have the Bible, I have the scriptures, I have God's revelation in my hands. I'm able to read it. How do we justify what we know? Well, what's the source of that revelation? It's the almighty, all-knowing, omniscient, all-knowing, omniscient God who tells me. Can I trust him? Can I trust the source who knows everything? Who created everything? Can I trust that source? Is this justification enough for me to know something by absolute certainty? I think it is. Is there any other source which can provide me with that kind of justification for the facts I know? There is no other source this is the source. And thus I can present the knowledge God has given to me with absolute certainty to other people. There's not the shred of a doubt in my mind that, that what God has revealed to me to be truth is indeed the absolute truth. Not the shred of a doubt. How does this work here? <laughs> oh, okay, got it. Therefore, in seeking an apologetic which glorifies God, we must ask, first of all, what Scripture says on the subject. So how do I know how I should pursue the test of defending the faith? How do I know that? Where do I need to go? I just said it. 
We need to go to the source, to the scriptures. Do the scripture tell me how I should pursue that adventure of defending the faith? I gave you the answer already earlier. Yes, indeed. It gives us the answer on many pages of uh, the Bible. Of course, we will not find apologetics in any biblical concordance, the word apologetics. But scripture does say quite a bit about human knowledge of God and about the differences between belief and unbelief, matters of central importance to apologetics. Well, the general theme which was given to me on Thursday, or given to me many weeks ago, but I presented it on Thursday, faith and reason. These are really chiffre terms for belief and unbelief. For Christianity and everything else which is not Christianity. So, in a sense, that test which was given to me was quite easy. <laughs> Regardless of what I would pick as my subject, I would hit the topic straight on. <laughs> as long as I speak about the differences between the Christian faith and everything else. Is this correct, Pastor? <laughs> so when that lady, I forgot her name, who organized the lecture, approached me and, and said, well, we changed the wording of the topic a little bit, and then she gave me the topic, I said, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> because I knew regardless of what, what she would have told me, it would have fitted. <laughs> so she was quite relieved when I said, that's fine. <laughs> and I don't know what Pastor Bob was thinking when I started. <laughs> but uh, I imagined him to think, what in the world is he saying? <laughs> How does this fit? <laughs> How does this fit into the topic of faith and reason? He's talking about Jurassic Park. <laughs> what in the world is that, has that to do with the Christian faith? I was just imagining that because I looked over to him and he had his eyes wide open <laughs> and I could see the wheels turning in his mind. <laughs> but I was quite relieved when we drove home and he said, and that's quite neat how you put that story about Jessic Park right in the beginning of your age, you know, which led into the very topic which obviously was assigned to me, <laughs> speaking about faith and reason. So I was quite glad and relieved. I think I, I gave him some peace of mind later on. <laughs> but do pray for the students and the people who were present at the lecture that way do think about what they have heard. And sometimes I do feel inadequate for the task. And sometimes I, I think, do they really understand what I just said, especially saying it in such a funny accent. And I'm sure I mispronounced some words, and best above said, yes, this one word here was a little bit off, but don't worry about it. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when we drove to Jacksonville, I, I asked him, how do you pronounce this word? How this word? And he had to think about. I said, buffin. How do you pronounce buffin? He said, buffin, buffin, buffin. Oh, you mean buffoon? 
Correct? Buffoon. <laughs> yes, buffoon. Okay, I got that. <laughs> and Velociraptor. Velociraptor. Okay, got that down to that. <laughs> the message of Scripture may, sum may be summarized in three great facts. Three great facts. The message of Scripture. Three terms. Creation, fall, and redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. Each of these has important implications for apologetics. Let's start with the first fact, creation. The word of God versus mere creaturely wisdom. God has made all creatures, including ourselves, for his glory. He is the Lord. We are his servants. Lordship involves authority. And God's ultimate lordship entails absolute authority. Creation is immediately linked to God's authority. This is the main reason why the understanding that God created this world is rejected. It is not necessarily the thought of creation itself. Something else lurks behind or hides behind that rejection of creationism. It's God's absolute authority over our lives. Keep this in your mind if you start a debate with someone who defends evolution theory. What he really does, even though he may not self-consciously realize it, but intuitively he does realize it, he is attacking God's authority over his life. He rejects that. And he uses the argument against creation to reject God's claim on his life. And this claim is absolute. We are the creature. God is the greater. He is the Lord. We are his servants. If I don't want to be his servant, I question the fact that he created me that I belong to him. Understand that. When you start arguing against evolution, it's defending God's absolute authority. We've got about three minutes coming up on 15 minutes. Okay. <coughs> God, when God speaks, human beings must hear and obey. There's no alternative. God defined Adam's life's purpose by giving him a what? What did he give him? A nice house, a relaxing vacation, a command. Genesis 1, verses 28 following, a command. And the fall was what? It was disobedience to God's word. You know all the passages. I don't need to give you the references in order to save a bit of time. I also won't give you my sources. Now, all of this is not necessarily original to me. And I have footnoted quite a bit of information which I have put here into this manuscript. If you're interested in all my sources, you're welcome to look through my manuscript. 
in the footnotes. You will find them. But I'm not really referring to these original sources where I got the information from in the lecture itself. So I'm not claiming that this is something I came up from scratch. Okay? I also learned from other people and thankfully they have done a lot of footwork for me so that I don't need to reinvent the wheel. And I do refer to them in the footnotes, but I will not tell, tell you necessarily. Maybe sometimes I will tell you. Good. The curse on post for life, as well as the promise of redemption, is defined by God's word. The human race is preserved from judgment by one man's obedience to God's word and is reconstituted by God's promise. Abram is called out of his country by the word of God. And his faith is a faith in God's spoken promise. Over and again, Israel is taught to keep every command that comes from God's mouth. The New Testament, far from rejecting this emphasis on the authority of God's word, endorses the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. Again, I have numerous references which I could now quote or refer to, which I will not, but I can back it up. I can back up every single statement I make with a reference to the scriptures. And this is extremely important to me. It's not my fault. It's not my wisdom. Regardless if it's good or bad, it's not my fault. It is what I have learned from the scriptures. And as faithfully as I possibly can, I try to relate it to you. Now, I'm not perfect by any stretch of imagination. I may make mistakes. I may misquote. I may uh, be wrong in certain things I say. And you are in a position to correct me, too, based on your knowledge of the scriptures. So this is our common ground, our basis. If I say something which goes beyond it's your task to correct me. And I try to relate to you what I have learned and studied from the scriptures. It also presents us with new words from God, the words of Jesus and the apostles. I just spoke about the authority of the Old Testament. Now we go into the New Testament. These two are words of absolute authority, and obeying them is a matter of life and death. Let us just pause here and take our break and we will pick up from here when we come back. How long should the break be? About 10 minutes roughly or what do you think? What do you think? I guess 10 minutes. Carl, can you 